All right, turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 3. It's our third week in the book of Micah. And to, uh, to help us understand uh, this chapter, it's on page 777 if you're using one of the church Bibles there in the chairs there. Uh, Matt, go ahead and throw up the first slide there for me. Now, I wanted to make a joke about how this was a sermon about offering, and just so you guys are all familiar with, no, (laughs) just kidding, just kidding, everybody sit back down, $100 bill, right, it looks a lot different than maybe when you grew up. I remember even, you know, I'm not that old, and I remember when money looked a lot different. It wasn't as fancy looking. Why does our money look like that? Our money looks like that so we can know something real from something fake. If you go to the next slide there, Matt, uh, this is an image that shares some of the different... Uh, lengths that the government has gone to prevent counterfeiting. So in our currency, we have things like, and I quote, very fine lines. That one's my favorite. Um, Microprinting, color shifting, watermarks, security threads, which I remember when those first came out, I remember guys figuring out how to take those out of the dollar bill. I could never do it, though. And then the special paper. You know, you hold a dollar bill, it feels different than just a regular piece of paper. But we have to ask the question, why? Why go through all this? Why make all of this special equipment that can do things that no other printers can? And when you think about counterfeiting, you have to think about the destructive force that it can be on a grand scale. Counterfeiting of money doesn't just affect you, the person who maybe gets a fake bill, but counterfeiting can affect an entire economy and country. It is something that can have far destructive reach. And can you imagine if Counterfeiting was easy, and we had this influx of fake bills, the economic crash that would happen in our country. We've seen this before for other reasons, and it is something that is generation-changing. So we see the importance of having the real thing, as opposed to having something that is counterfeit to what it is supposed to be. Today in our passage, God through Micah is going to call out the counterfeit leaders among his people. He is specifically going to target these leaders and he is going to accuse them of not being the leaders they should be because of their actions. Their actions will show that they are counterfeit to what God would want. 
Micah will call out their evil deeds and find them being guilty of crimes against God's people and therefore showing that they, in fact, are fake leaders. And standing in opposition to them will be Micah himself. So today as we look at Micah chapter 3, and we look at God's calling out of God, the leaders of his people, we're going to learn about how leaders should lead. We're going to learn generally how all of us are called to lead and live, whether we're leaders or not. But then lastly, and maybe most importantly, we're going to talk about the importance of repentance which is something that these leaders lack. So our big idea, if you're following along in the outline providing your bulletin, is this. The true leader of God's people preaches repentance and obedience. So let's look at point number one there. Leaders as cannibals. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1, chapter 3. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. One of the things that we've seen a little bit of, but we'll continue to see in Micah, is the vividness of the metaphors that he uses. In fact, one of the reasons that I chose Micah was because when I was at the conference a couple of weeks ago, I actually sat in on a session about the metaphors in Micah. And it just intrigued me so much about this book because metaphors are powerful because they not only engage the mind, but they engage the heart. And here we have a vivid, if not graphic, metaphor to help us understand the wickedness of these leaders. So let's look at their injustice. First of all, in verse 1 we see that the leaders of Israel are being addressed specifically, and then there's the question at the end of verse 1. Is it not for you to know justice? Answer, yes. If you're a leader, especially here, we're also talking about civil government leaders in the nation of Israel. It was their job to know what justice was and to give justice, pursue justice in the country. But they cannot pursue justice because, look at verse 2, you hate the good and love the evil. And help us understand, to help communicate to them and to us today, God's opinion of the fact that they hate good and love evil, God, through Micah, describes them as cannibals. through a graphic and disgusting picture. 
Because what do we do with sin sometimes? We say, well, it's not that bad. Isn't that one of the things that we do with our sin? Well, you know, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. But to help us connect with God's true view of sin, especially the sin of these leaders, we see it being comparing to tearing the skin from off my people, the flesh from their bones. You flay the skin from off them and break their bones into pieces, chop them up like meat in a pot. You turn them into soup. It's disgusting. It should cause us to be slightly queasy. But also our sin and the wickedness and injustice in our world should cause us to be slightly queasy. I think that is one of the problems that we have. We think too lightly of sin. It's not the only problem we have, but I think it is a main problem that we have. Now let's think about this. Why, why compare their wickedness and injustice to cannibalism? Well, first off, as I've said before, it's to show the depth of their sin and the depravity of their sin. Because we would all agree that Killing and eating your neighbor is a bad thing, and so that helps us understand how wicked this is, and that they deserve judgment. Secondly, injustice, the wickedness that they are committing, is in a sense treating people like animals. And so you see this in verse 3, to chop them up like meat in a pot. That's what you do with an animal that you're eating for food. And so wickedness against others and injustice against others is treating them subhuman. It's treating them like just an animal. And then thirdly, injustice is using people instead of serving them. When we act wickedly to others, when we treat them unjustly, we are using them instead of loving and serving them. You see this in another passage in the book of Ezekiel where the shepherds were eating God's sheep instead of caring for the sheep. The leaders were not serving the people like shepherds should. They were just consuming them for their own good, for their own selfish desires. And when we act with injustice, when leaders act with injustice and they're using people for their own selfish ambitions, they are like cannibals. I want to connect this to a passage that I find very interesting in the New Testament. Because you might want to say, well, this is just, you know, mean God of the Old Testament. <laughs> but let me read you from the book of Galatians. This is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's in the book of Galatians. Don't consume one another. Might be easy to skip over that, but I connect it here because again, it's, 
It's the opposite of serving and loving. That was in verses 13 and 14. It's using people. It's attacking people. It's acting like an animal and treating them like an animal. So what do we do? What do we do because of this? First is that we need to speak out against injustice and wickedness in our world. This is what God thinks of wickedness and injustice, and our view should be the same. Secondly, when we lead in the church, when we interact with each other in this community, we must not consume one another. And the antidote that you saw in the beginning of Galatians, the antidote is serving one another and loving one another. So if we're not serving and loving one another, it'll be easy to consume one another. And then thirdly, and this connects with verse 4, that there is a certain peace we can have that God will judge wickedness, especially those in authority who are wicked. Look at verse 4. This is referring to the wicked leaders. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. There are some people in this world that, that we look at them and they are, they are wicked, we know it, but, but when we look at them, we see that they are too powerful for us to do anything about it, or it feels like they're too, too powerful for us. But this reminds us that no world power, no leader is above the justice of God. And that can give us peace. And we trust that God will do what is right and what is good. In verses 5 to 8, after addressing the civil leaders, the government leaders in Israel, Micah then moves to the prophets of Israel. Look at verses 5 to 8 with me. And so these that would call themselves prophets are in fact false prophets. Verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Micah addresses those who call themselves, who claim to be prophets of God. And again, in this context, what do we mean by prophet? People who speak on behalf of God. So these are people who are claiming to speak God's words to the people. But what do we see about the words that they speak? How do you know what they're going to say? Well, first they cry peace. But then we look at why they cry peace. Who cry peace when they have something to eat. (laughs) But what else do they cry out? Look at the next part of verse 5. But declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. What's the picture? You give me what I want, I'll tell you what you want to (laughs) hear. If you don't give me what I want, I'm going to say bad things. What is very absent from this description is actually speaking what God has said. 
The motivating factor is not that God has told them to speak. The motivating factor is their own selfish desires. Are they getting what they want? So if people want to hear peace, if they want to hear that things are good, well, give me something and I'll tell you that. What drives their talk is their desires and their appetites. So what will God do to these people who are, beginning of verse 5, leading God's people astray? Verse 6 and 7. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from the Lord. Here again we see a pronouncement of judgment on these false prophets. Prophets who claim to see the answer, to know the answer, to know what God is going to do, to see what God is going to do. These people who claim supernatural sight, what will happen to them, it'll be darkness and they won't be able to see anything at all. Again, this picks up on a theme we've seen before of the perfect justice of God. They are claiming to see and God will make them blind. It's a perfect justice. The punishment fits the crime. Those who claim to speak for God, they shall all cover their lips. Those who claim to hear from God, verse 7, there is no answer from God. God will bring these false prophets to justice because they are not preaching what he wants, they are preaching what they want. They are preaching to get their needs met. They're preaching for the stuff that they want and that is what guides them, not God's spirit. We see this today. In fact, recently we saw Another televangelist get raided by the IRS and the post office, which I did not know the post office could raid. But, but it happened again. And we've seen this throughout our history. We continue to see it to today of people telling people we want to hear and then buying private jets. Pleading to their people, if you want God's blessing, give me money so I can buy my latest luxury cruiser. God will bring judgment and justice on those who have fleeced God's people because of their greed. He will bring darkness on them and he will not answer them. Those who claim to speak for God will ultimately receive no answer from him. I want to talk about verse 8 briefly, but I'm going to come back to verse 8 at the end because this is the bright light in this dark chapter. 
So Micah has just talked about the false prophets. He has described their wickedness and what they have done. But then he says in verse 8, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. In contrast to these false prophets, Micah and what he does and what he says comes out of the empowerment of the Spirit. Meaning that God is empowering what he says and what he does. And he can preach with power because God is the one who is speaking through him. And then look what he preaches. So what has God given him the power to do? Second part of verse 8. To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Here's what spirit-empowered preaching looks like. Spirit-empowered preaching is confidently declaring sin to a sinful people. Now there's more to it. And that's for other chapters in Micah. And we'll get there. But God-centered preaching, preaching from God, must begin with the holiness of God and our sin against him. And if a preacher never says that, then they are these false prophets claiming peace when you give them something to eat. I want to come back to verse 8 later, but let's move on to verses 9 to 12 because God will again address both the civil leaders and these false prophets, these leaders in Israel. And again, if you're following along in your outline, we're going to see point three here, that leaders as judgment deniers. So verse 9, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Again, we see the accusation against these leaders of perverting justice. You need to see how important justice is to God. Not just his justice, but justice in his world and among his people. This is the main part of their accusation, is that they are accused of perverting justice against God's people. They detest justice. They make crooked all that is straight. They take the good things and pervert them to their own desires and wickedness. See, in one sense, we think of sin as just doing bad things, but we can also think of sin as taking what is good and using it for evil means. Of taking what God has made good and twisting it and distorting it into wickedness. They build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. All the success has come at the cost of wickedness. That's how they've gotten ahead. That's how they've been successful. 
And then in verse 11, Micah gets more specific. Its heads, its leaders, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. At the center of this injustice, at the center of this wickedness, is a greedy group of leaders. They are following their greed instead of their God. They will do their job if you bribe them. They'll do what they're supposed to do for a price. They will speak to you for money. And if that weren't bad enough, look at the middle of verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So not only are they greedy, wicked leaders, they claim the Lord's favor. They claim God is with me. God is in the midst of us while they practice wickedness and greed. Their sin is, and guilt is doubled by the fact that they are not only being wicked but claiming to have God's favor. Claiming that God is pleased with what they are doing. Now, if I've learned anything in the Bible, it's this. Don't claim God's favor when you don't have it, because he doesn't take too kindly to that. <laughs> Look at verse 12. Here's the judgment. Because they have claimed that we are good and right with God, even though they are wicked, that no disaster shall come upon us. Verse 12, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooden height. Again, a picture of complete justice. I want to look at the first two examples of that. Look at the first one. Zion shall be plowed as a field. What do we know about Zion? Zion is a mountain. So I want you to picture a mountain getting turned into a field. Now, I don't know much about geology and geography, but when you take a mountain and you turn it into a flat place where you can plant, that's something. That's the picture of judgment, of leveling a mountain. Second one, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Jerusalem was the biggest city in their whole country. And it's going to be reduced to a heap of ruins. That's the power of God's judgment. That's the completeness of God's judgment against wickedness and injustice. So what should they do? What can they do? What can any of us do? Because we may not be government leaders in our country, but we have the same wickedness as them. 
Our wickedness might look differently. Our wickedness might be on a smaller scale than leaders of countries. But we are wicked and under God's judgment nonetheless. Let's go back to the truth of verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah proclaimed to the people of his day and proclaims to us today our sin. And the right response to that sin the right response to the truth that we, like these leaders, are sinners before God. The right response is repentance. You see, a true leader, a godly leader, calls God's people to repentance. Because we are wicked, we are full of transgression and sin. And so today, we need to hear that call to repentance ourselves. We need to understand the depth of our sin before a holy God, and we need to come to him in repentance. We also need to understand that God has placed us here as his preachers in his world, and that we cannot leave out a call to repentance to those who do not know Christ. To leave out repentance, we would be just like these prophets who spoke what the people wanted to hear, who would take a bribe and tell them what they wanted to hear. Now for us, it might not be money, It might be the bribe of a good reputation. It might be the bribe of avoiding ridicule. But we must speak the truth. And we cannot be bought. We, like Micah, must hear the message of repentance and we must speak the message of repentance to a dying world. Let me close with a couple applications this morning. First is this, do not consume one another. This is especially true for those in positions of leadership, but it is also true in one sense for all of us. Rather than consume, rather than cannibalize each other, we need to serve and love one another. Number two, don't live according to greed. We see that at the center of these accusations of if I get what I want, I'll give you what you want. Not driven by the Spirit, but driven by our greed and our desires for what we want. We live for God and his glory, not money. 
Number three, we must learn how to preach a message of repentance to our world. We must or we will be false prophets. Thankfully, we like Micah are empowered by the same Holy Spirit. We are not alone in that. And so we must thoughtfully yet boldly preach repentance. We must be committed to the truth of God's word in how we speak. And number four, we must ourselves repent, believe, and obey. The message is very clear on the centrality of repentance to the Christian life. And today is a fitting day for this message because as we move to communion, communion is a time that we lay out as a church according to the command of Jesus to examine our hearts. That we are to, through repentance and faith, commanded not to disgrace the Lord's table. So today, as we move to communion here, that you would take some time to to repent, to examine your heart. Listen to the words from 1 Corinthians 11. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I want to invite those who are helping with communion to come forward at this time.